Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, August the 9th, 2023. A little over a week ago. Um, Bethann Patrick was on the show. She's become a regular on the show. She is my ears and eyes on the literature of the world, one of uh, America's most perceptive and persistent literary critics. She was on the show recommending hot reads for the heat wave uh, a week ago. There was a horrible heat wave uh, on the East Coast and indeed throughout much of America. Uh, this week, uh, there's been some very strange weather uh, around uh, where Bethann lives in Westminster, Maryland. There was a baby tornado. Um, I think and, that's what we uh, call it. Is that what we call it? Uh, I think Bethann? so. Um, you know, sort of a derecho, which is a derecho, a which I'd never heard of. So I'm calling yeah. it a baby tornado. But yeah. uh, official uh, weather uh, language describes it as a derecho. Um, which is, of course, the literary, the right rich, literary word for a baby tornado. Uh, and Bethan this week ha has seven tornadoes, literary tornadoes on, our, on her radar, the seven books for her, the seven novels of the summer. Um, with our nonfiction, Ben, I have to begin with a, a nod to a nonfiction book I did uh, last uh, couple of weeks ago with Lena Andrews another Washington-based writer. Um, on she, she has a new book out, uh, Valiant Women, the Extraordinary American Servicemen Who Helped Win World War II. Lena Andrews is um, a CIA analyst, a very non-fictional kind of writer. Uh, but one of uh, Bethann's books of the summer, one of her seven novels of the summer, is a piece of literature, a piece of fiction about women in second in the Second World War. Good night, Irene, by Luis Alberto Urea. Uh, tell us about this book. Why? Why is this one of your books? One of your your mini tornadoes of the summer, Bethan. Well, Andrew, uh, glad to be back, and I'm really happy to be talking about this one. Actually, it has a Westminster connection because last Saturday I was in Westminster, Maryland to do a live interview with Luis Orea about Goodnight Irene. And here's what was so exciting about that event and what ties it into the book you just talked about, Valiant Women. We had eight Red Cross Club Mobile Corps members there in the audience. And these are women who from, in our case, because the women of World War II are mostly and sadly gone, um, these women served in Korea and Vietnam with the Red Cross Club Mobile Corps. They were also known as the Donut Dollies in um, sort of slang because in yeah, the- Yeah, the New York Mobile Times review leads with uh, yeah. the Donut Dolly, the Donut Dollies of World War II. I was uh, not a very typically New York Times kind of uh, headline. Not at all. And here's the really great thing about these women. They volunteered and they were closer to the front in almost all of these conflicts than any other women. And that's because they were meant to be giving some, a little taste of home, some coffee, maybe a donut, maybe a pack of chewing gum to the GIs who were going to be in the Battle of the Bulge the next day. So 
Good Night Irene is actually based on Luis Urea's mother, um, her, her story. Uh, Irene is her fictional avatar. And this is a book about World War II, about female friendship, about what we don't know uh, about parents who may have experienced PTSD. It is a beautiful novel, and it's one of the few books this summer, um, an historical novel that I think men and women can enjoy equally because Urea has put his heart and soul into this story. And I really hope it will get a wide audience because, for example, his mother and her co-truck driver um, in the book there, Irene and Dorothy, were actually at the liberation of Buchenwald. It is an incredible story uh, seen through their eyes and also through their actual primary sources because um, uh, Urea was able to access his mother's friend, Miss Jill's trunk full of letters and photographs and diaries. So this is very, very authentic. Sounds very cinematic as well. It's it true. Is. It's the other books, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. sure someone snapped up the movie rights. Uh, some people have described uh, this generation, of course, uh, Beth Ann, as the greatest generation. Is that particularly true of the women in this book? Are they treated as noble, heroic figures? Well, uh, I think they are great. And I think they are members of that generation. Miss Jill was 94 when Urea and his wife, Cindy, met her. She died at 102, sadly, and uh, but had all of her faculties, was completely, you know, um, strong and fine. Whereas Urea's mother had terrible PTSD and he, growing up, had no idea why she had nightmares that left her screaming and kicking and just in misery. And so I think what he wants to show here is that they did their duty. They did what they were supposed to do. They were very, very brave, um, but they had there were consequences to that bravery. Some people were able to repress it and take it, keep sort of keep it in or under wraps. But is that better all the time than having nightmares? I'm not so sure. Well, from the greatest female generation of the 1940s in World War II to a different generation today, uh, Cool Girls on the Run, uh, another <laughs> book, uh, The Guest, which seems to be the it book of the summer. Um, Time called it the anxious girl book of the summer. It's about a, a cool girl on the run. It's already got over 2,500 ratings on uh, on Amazon. It's a, already, I'm sure, a, a bestseller. Um uh, and its ending is particularly uh, controversial. I don't want you to give that one away. No, 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 Anna no. no talks about ha a lot of debate about the ending. Is this the book about the 2020s? If 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 Goodnight Irene is about the heroism of um, of women in the 1940s, is um, uh, is uh, the guest a, a book about what it's like to be female in the 2020s? Well, I hope not, uh, since I have daughters in their 20s, in the 2020s, and I am a woman of a different age in the 2020s. What I'm, uh, two things that I want to say is, one, I, I read a study last year, I think, about 
who is happiest in the United States. And the upshot was that it's basically people who are middle to upper middle class. And that is because they can reach a level of contentment with what they have. They don't have resources to get anything they want. So they learn how to appreciate what they have. Whereas, and this is where we get to the guest, people who are rich and or super rich um, don't always have the same inner resources that someone uh, a little less wealthy might have. They may not have the same education. They may not have the same experiences. Often they have been so busy getting money that they haven't traveled or talked to people who are quite different from themselves. And so in the guest, I recognize this deep unhappiness um, among the people, the characters in Klein's novel, because, you know, their conversations are just so banal. I think there's one where a woman hears about a mother who murdered her children and put their bodies in a freezer. And the woman says, oh, must have been a big freezer. And gee, what brand was it? Uh, you know, it's just it's just crazy. It's Is so this sort of Jay, Jay McInerney updated for and it, you know, Jay female 2020? Gatsby, Andrew, Jay Gatsby, um, who is definitely one of the empty rich people mm. that Klein is recalling in her work. And, you know, her... Um, novel before this, The Girls, was about the Manson family. And I think Klein is really intrigued by groups and communities who get things very wrong. So she's got this, as you said, call girl on the run. And I think that it ties into something we've been talking about this week online, which is sad girl lit. These books about young women who can't seem to get their act together, who seem to have missed out on everything they think they should have in life. And so if you take sad girl lit, add it to hot girl lit, you get anxious girl lit. And the anxiety here for this protagonist is that she needs to find a way to get through a week where she has no housing and no money in order to win back um, one of her clients who she thinks might be the person who will support her, you know, for a long time to come. And it is really, really hard and sad, but totally accurate. And what I want to see is Emma Klein turn her scalpel on a social justice topic. And I think, you know, she may get there. She's incredible writer. So, so on key. Every detail in this book is right. And it really, as you said, really does have um, an incredible ending that we won't give away. Yeah, we're so, certainly not going to give that away. I saw uh, Goddard's Contempt this week. It's got a, it's been re-released, uh, uh, a, a cleaned up a visual mm -hmm. Um, his early 60s film. It reminded me in some ways, I guess, of Bunel's Belle du Jour, of course. Oh, a, yeah. That's a, a film a about prostitution and yep. very controversial in the way it's presented. Is this one presented controversially? Is, the, is the, Does the cool girl enjoy her, so to speak, calling, or is it a brutal kind of life? It's a brutal kind of life. And that is not necessarily because the sex is always awful or because she hasn't chosen this life. It's a brutal kind of life because 
it's a grifting kind of life. You have to keep finding a way to get pills, you know, that get you through the day when you've been out too late the night before, or you need pills to keep you up that night because you've got um, a John, you know, or you've got a party that you have to show up at. And there's always more required of you, um, better clothing, um, more, you know, expensive cocktails, uh, a place, like I said, a place to stay, rents, summer houses, all of this. And none of it comes easily um, to her. She's very young. She's 22. She is not, for example, a woman who is, let's say, 35 or 40 and who has decided to work as an escort, you know, in a very professional way and is focusing on her bank account. This character really does not have her own moral center. Now, that said, Klein is not looking at her with through a, a lens of, you know, good girl, bad girl, not at all. She's really, really objective about what this means. What she does give us is the idea that this is a life that can't be sustained. Well, looking for that moral center, maybe we won't find it in the United States, at least with your seven hot books, or your seven novels. Maybe we have to go to Cold War. Berlin, Jenny Erpenek's uh, new novel, Keros, looks, uh, I haven't read it, but it looks wonderful. I think of all the seven, this would be the book that I will first read. Is this a traditional love affair written from an East German perspective, of all things? Well, I would say it is, um, Kairos is a love affair. It's very, very sad. This book is an elegy. And it's not just an elegy to the two people who are having the love affair. And I'll tell you more about them in a second. It is an elegy for the end of East Germany, not because anyone, especially Erpenbeck, who was born in, in the DDR, it's, it's not an elegy because anyone thinks that it was a great system or that it produced incredible you know, genius. It's an elegy because Erpenbeck knows, having grown up there, that the people who lived under that regime were people like everyone else. Uh, you know, she has her character who is 19 at the beginning of the novel in 1986. It's the last few... Um, years of uh, Soviet rule. And her character says, we didn't know that we were something, you know, unique or something strange or something that the world looked at askance. We just thought we were people going about our lives, going to school, you making dinner, all of that kind of thing. And so this is a book about this 19 year old woman who meets a 50-year-old writer, a very distinguished writer. They're on a bus, they're in East Berlin, and they begin an affair. And the affair is, uh, some people have really focused on the sex because Urban Beck doesn't usually write, you know, sex scenes, erotic scenes. These scenes are for her pretty finely drawn, but they're also meaningful. Um, I think the first time, if I'm remembering correctly, the first time these two um, hook up, it's 
believe it or not, to Mozart's Requiem. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> not your usual love affair. Well, that's very, uh, very German, I think. It is uh, very German. That's it. So this is East meets West in a way that some people out there will never have known. It's also old meets young, which is very time honored. Uh, so I, I think it's a beautiful book about what it meant for Germany to reunify. And here's the really, um, one of the things that just sent chills up my spine reading it. So um, the, the, the young woman is in the, you know, um, pioneer, not what, what is it? The pioneer youth or the, you know, whatever the group is for the young East Germans. Meanwhile, her 50 year old lover in 1986 was actually part of the Hitler youth. So Erpenbeck is definitely taking this fulcrum, this this late um, East German uh, time, this this time period when everything changed, and using it as a way to show that um, there is no fairness. All's fair in love and war, and that means Cold War, and that means this love affair that will eventually and sadly end. And is there a, a lives of other element here, a Stasi perspective? I'm thinking of the Stasi. Uh, a couple of weeks, I'm interviewing Anna Funder, the Australian writer, who, of course, wrote Stasi Land, magnificent book. Yes. She has a new book out on George Orwell's wife that I'm very excited about. It's going to be one of the big hits, I think, of the fall. Um, is there a political angle here? Is, is, is there, the regime is. recognized or is this really a novel about private life? No, this is, I, I, I love that you mentioned the lives of others, Andrew, um, and something some people watching may already know, and I can't remember if you do, I actually lived in Berlin from 1986 to 1989. So, oh, so you're um, very familiar, I, I'd forgotten that, but you're very familiar with all this. I'm so familiar with this. And so what I see in this book is, uh, and the lives of others was when I was there as well. The movie, of course. The movie, of course. Um, and oh gosh, Stasi Land is an amazing book. I can't wait to wait to read the book on um, Mrs. Orwell. But it's um, called Wifedom, a brilliant title too. Just, yes, just the title wifedom. makes me want to read it. I know, I know. Um, so what's interesting here is the title that Erpenbeck chose, Kairos, is specifically the name for the Greek god of opportunity, okay? So it's about opportunities and how we meet and, you know, on a bus and that changes our lives. But Kairos, when you're in the literary world, also re refers very specifically to a concept of time, time out of time. When you're in Kairos time, it's like when you're in deep contemplation of something, you're studying, you're looking at something really closely. And that is what Erpenbeck is doing in this book. She's saying, I am narrowing in on this. I am going to show you the political and the personal. This is not just a love affair. And that's because I believe that's what she, what she's saying is because it can't be just personal for these two people living as they did through this particular time under this particular political system. So in a sense, I guess um, it might be fair to say that Jenny Erpenbeck is, is bearing witness to the end of the GDR, which is a good segue to another book on bearing yeah. witness, a book, uh, your, your fourth uh, novel of the summer, Witness by Jamel Brinkley. 
a book indeed about bearing witness, a series of stories. What is the the bearing witness element to this collection of stories by Brinkley? I, I am so glad you asked that because here's what that title is. I, these, these one word titles that I've chosen, they're really interesting. So witness, that is a command. It can be a lament. It can be sort of a state that you're in. And it can also mean a person, right? An actual witness. So Brinkley this is his second short story collection. And one of the things that I have to say is short story collections are not exactly catnip for editors and publishers. So if someone has published two of them in a row without a novel or some other kind of book, you know that person is writing at the highest level. And actually Kirkus Reviews says that Brinkley may already be a grandmaster of the form. Um, they mention his name along with Alice Munro, Eudora Welty, you know, other people who are short story uh, maestros. And so um, this was, uh, uh, the title story was an O. Henry Prize winner in 2021. And these stories are all about Brooklyn, all about New York. And most of them, every single story is about Black people. There are very few white people in this collection. And it's about how we help each other and hurt each other. And sometimes we don't help people who have been hurt. And Brinkley is saying, it, you know, you can't just tell the stories where someone is saved. That's what he's saying. You can't just tell about the time when, you know, someone reports, you know, domestic violence or someone reports a crime. You also have to witness the times when someone falls further down into poverty or despair. Um, look, don't look away is what Brinkley is saying in these stories. And um, there are a couple of people who seem to think that you know, maybe this collection um, isn't quite up to the standard of his first one. Um, one of my um, colleagues, Tope Falaren, who is an incredible novelist, thinks that there are a few stories in this collection that fall short, that maybe are a little too easy in plot or in character development. Uh, I was I, I don't necessarily agree, but I think that's important for people to know. But again, uh, and I'm blanking, Andrew, on Brinkley's first collection. I don't know why I can't remember the title right now, but um, I will say that this is. Well, we know the second one. Get it. Witness. If you want a master, yeah. a young master of short stories talking about not looking away. One writer who has never allowed us to look away is Colson Whitehead. A new book by him is always a major event. Crook Manifesto. Is this uh, in true Whiteheadian tradition, uh, Bethann? Is it another magnificent piece of work? It really is. And I was torn between putting this one on the list or James McBride's The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which I also love. But because this one is out earlier and it's a continuation, I decided to go with the Whitehead. And in true Whiteheadian fashion, I love that. Uh, Crook Manifesto is a book that is, it, it's, oh my 
God, I just love it. It's 1970 in Harlem. And, you know, you've got this. Trash piles up on the streets, crime at an all time high. So we've got raining towards bankruptcy, shooting war breaking out between the NYPD and the Black Liberation Army. What perfect material for a novelist. It is perfect material. You know, Whitehead is just incredible. He keeps turning out books. He he can turn out a second book um, in, you know, Crook Manifesto after Harlem Shuffle that is similar, or he can turn out a book that is completely different. Uh, I have been reading Whitehead since very early in his career, and I'm always always surprised and happy. Uh, I mean, he, he wrote The Nickel Boys. That was one of the saddest, toughest books to read, but also very important. And then Crook Manifesto, this is something I want to say about it for sure. So here you've got Ray Carney. He's um, always involved in some kind of crime, small, medium, large. But in this book, he at one point wants to get Jackson five tickets for his daughter. Okay. For his very young daughter. And uh, a lot of people might say, you know, you shouldn't be committing a crime to get tickets for your daughter. Well, I say, look who was out there trying to get Stanford cruise scholarships, you know, by committing uh, fraud. We all know about that, that um, college admissions gate. And so what Whitehead is pointing out is, look what we do for our kids, regardless of our place in society or our, you know, location, our socioeconomic class, our race. We're all trying to hustle to make things better for our kids. And that's what I love about Crook Manifesto is Ray Carney is always making Making bad choices. Carney is the fictional. Is there anything uh, that Whitehead presents the early seventies in a in a surprising way? We all have a stereotypical image of New York on the brink of complete and utter chaos. Is there oh, something he's that he's so- suggesting that makes us rethink that period? Fascinating Absolutely, period. Because he brings he brings in joy. He shows you characters who are doing like really strange, eccentric, and ridiculous things, but not always criminal or dark or violent things. And I love that. Um, you know, now we all want to go to Harlem, right? Harlem is happening. Everybody want, is like, oh, it's so busy. Look at the development. But you know what? Back in the 70s, when people were too afraid to take the A train, uh, Harlem still had life and vigor and beauty and all kinds of things happening. And this might be the second volume of a trilogy. We're all waiting to see if Whitehead is going to write that third book. So Harlem Shuffle, Crook Manifesto, we'll see what comes next from him, but it is bound to be worth reading. Speaking of um, going to see uh, legitimately or otherwise uh, the Jackson 5 in the early 70s, uh, last week my wife and I, well, last weekend my wife and I saw Gladys Knight in Santa Rosa. So that brought back the 1970s for us. We've got a couple more books. One that's appropriately enough, given what we just talked about uh, with uh, with Whitehead, uh, called Loot by Tanya James, another writer I'm not too familiar with. Tell us about Loot and, and, and why this is a book. This is not a book about America. It's about, uh, it's, a, it's I guess, is it, would you call it magical uh, Fantasy, magical realism. mm, Okay, so it's an historical novel, 
And it is set in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And we start out in, I believe this is Missouri, India. And at the time it is its own kingdom. And there is a, a, I hope I get this right, a, a, a Raja named Tipu. And he asks um, his woodcarver, he is a full-time woodcarver who's extremely talented. He asks him to carve an automaton. So an automaton, of course, is a, a, a very simple automatic machine. Well, not all of them are simple. Some of them are quite uh, elaborate. But he wants his machine, Tipu Sultan, Tipu wants his machine to be a tiger which would have been native to the area, attacking a British soldier. Because this these were the early days of the British coming in and colonizing India. And Tipu Sultan was very upset about this, okay? So he um, does carve the Abbas, the, um, the woodcarver, makes this, and it gets stolen. And the Sultan says, well, you know, I need this back. So you have to go and find it. And it turns out that it's been um, stolen by um, a British noblewoman. And he winds up in France and then in London trying to recover this. And it is such a a fascinating book. You cannot stop reading it. It's really delightful. Yet at the same time, it's dealing with big topics about who owns what, what is allowed to be owned by the West when they go to the East. And uh, I just want to say one really quick thing about this that I love. Um, So Tanya James, this is her third novel, uh, when she sent two chapters of it to her agent, Nicole Araji, uh, Araji said, I'm going to handcuff you to your keyboard if you don't keep writing this book. So uh, it, it is one of those it, it is one of those novels you just cannot stop reading. So it is a real treat for historical. It fiction. sounds like the kind of thing that might happen in uh, in in uh, in the guest handcuffing. Oh, yeah, you absolutely. And, you know, in a way, that's true. It's true. And it, just in a different century. Um, that's interesting. The book came with a very nice blurb from Ma- Maggie O'Farrell, of course, yes. best-selling author of Hamlet and Marriage Portrait. Maggie was on the show a couple of weeks ago. There's a tiger in her new book, The Marriage Portrait, too. So tigers are appearing everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Finally, we've done a bit of time traveling of our own from New York of the 70s to the East Germany of the 80s to Second World War of the 1940s. Time traveling at its best. And the final book um, is a book about, novel about time travel, Time's Mouth by Eden uh, Lepuki. Interesting name. Uh, Tell us about this book, why this is your final choice, Time's Mouth. This is my final choice because Eden is a writer like no other. And she is a writer who really focuses on her native state of California, where you also live, Andrew. And Time's Mouth starts with a woman who has become a sort of guru. She calls herself Ursa. Um, And she has this commune of women in 1970s California, which is so Californian, definitely. No no worries there. But 
it goes back in time to the um, late 40s, early 50s, when she is a young woman and is dealing with family problems. And so this book is about how she runs away. But then in the 70s, her son and her son's um, girlfriend, partner also run away. And then their child, who Ursa wants to you know, take care of, sort of tells the story. But here's the twist. Ursa has started this commune because she believes she can time travel through her own memories. And so Time's Mouth is basically the place where all the people in this family who have this ability uh, go to access their own, their, their former selves and their current selves and maybe their future selves. It is a very, very weird book. You yeah, have it's to- a very weird book for a very weird state. Perhaps appropriate that it's set partly in Santa Cruz. Maybe Absolutely. If you and want to time travel, just come and visit me. I'm just above Haight-Ashbury. Don't have to read a book to do that. You there you go. And I, I want to say that um, Lepucky uh, teaches writing at Caltech. And so there are also these um, orgon energy accumulators, which a scientist in California or a psychiatrist, you know, put together. It is just super duper weird, super duper Californian and a lot of fun. I think it would be great for people's, you know, Labor Day reading. Well, Bethan, I joked earlier, uh, you're the officially the book critic of the LA Times, but you could be the book critic of Keen On. I'm not sure if I can pay you, but uh, <laughs> you're a wonderful book critic. Thank and you. that was a real treat. The seven novels of the summer this time next week, you'll be back with the seven nonfiction books of the summer. So have a wonderful week, Bethan. Don't get eaten by any baby tornadoes and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Andrew. Count on it.